Well, this morning, from 2 Samuel, our Old Testament lesson, we're coming to an ancient text, a text which is prior to all the books of the prophets, prior to all of the well-known prophecies of the coming of Jesus Christ, and a text which is the source, the fountainhead of the Davidic covenant. And in that sense, this may be surprising, this text is the root, in many ways, of Christmas. Certainly the root of much Christmas glory. What is said here in this text reverberates down through Israel's history, and in fact largely shapes and determines that history. Now, this might be unfamiliar territory, perhaps. Most of us are familiar with the fact that God made a covenant with Abraham, And that subsequently he made a covenant with Israel through Moses. But this text, 2 Samuel 7, right, the covenant made here is often muted or overlooked. Doesn't quite get as much love as all the other covenants, let's put it that way. Now, the word, if you listen to the Old Old Testament reading, the word covenant is not used in the passage. Right? But the reality of the covenant is there, and later... In 2 Samuel 23, and also in Psalm 132 and Psalm 89, which are commentaries on this text, right? What transpires there is called the covenant, right? So it's not called the covenant in 2 Samuel 7, but it's called the covenant later, right? So what I want to contend this morning then from the 2 Samuel text is that the glory of Christmas... Right, the glory of Christmas cannot be fully or even properly grasped apart from this covenant. So it's kind of a bold claim, right? The glory of Christmas cannot be fully or even properly grasped apart from this Davidic covenant. So let me forewarn you, we're going to do a bunch of covenant theology this morning. So strap yourself in. Uh, just what you want to do on Christmas morning, I'm sure. So I'm going to look at this text under five headings. They're there in your bulletin on page five. The first heading is the historical prologue. The historical prologue. So here's the setting. Now we're going to get to the glory of Christmas, but I ask for your patience and indulgence for a few moments anyway. So David has his own house, meaning his royal residence. The Lord has given him rest on all sides from his enemies, we're told. So he says to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in this house of cedar, but the ark of God is in a tent, right? There's no temple yet. This is before the temple. This is, you know, 1050 BC, something like that. Now, David does not expressly say here that he wants to build a house for the Lord, but Nathan gets the drift of his remark. And so he says to the king, you know, go and do all that's in your heart and the Lord will be with you. But the Lord speaks a word of correction, a word sort of of redirection here. And the importance of what the Lord, of what God has to say in this text, is indicated by the sheer length of his remarks. In this text, verses 5 through 16 are one long divine speech through Nathan to David, which begins with a question from God. Would you build me a house to dwell in? And then God begins to rehearse his housing history, 
Right? Gods in the ancient Near East dwelt in houses. They dwelt in temples. That's what temples were. Not that the God was confined there. And certainly the God of Israel was not confined there. But that he manifested his presence in a unique way there. So God rehearses his housing history. He hasn't lived in a house, he says, from the time of the Exodus, when he takes Israel as a nation, down to the present day. He's been accommodating himself to Israel's nomadic existence. He says, I've been moving around in a tent, moving with Israel as she moved. And then he says in verse 7, he never spoke. I never spoke to any of the judges. The period of the judges, right? Right before the period of David, right? I never spoke to any of the judges saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I never hired a real estate agent. I'm not looking for a house. So why this background here? Well, we actually know a lot more about this in the 20th century than we knew before. The, the reason for this kind of prologue to the covenant that he's going to make with David is that in the ancient Near East, covenants were often opened with the king or the sovereign, the party establishing the covenant, what that party would do, and we have the documents on this now, right? what that party would do in establishing the covenant is they would rehearse the history of the relationship and of all the benefits that the king had lavished on the vassal, the vassal being the subject of the covenant. This was known, or has come to be known in the 20th century, as the historical prologue to the covenant. So, for example, God's calling Abraham, protecting him, bringing him to the promised land, constitute a historical prologue to the covenant with Abraham. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt is the historical prologue to the giving of the law. So here in verse 8, God reminds David of the blessings he's received. I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, so that you should be prince over my people, Israel. Right? I've been with you, he, te- he tells David, this whole time. And this is really the heart, this is really the substance, it's not complicated, of all of God's redemptive covenant arrangements. I will be with you. The covenant rests on the Emmanuel principle. Ultimately, on face-to-face communion with the triune God in glory. And these historical benefits which God has lavished on David are then expanded into these future promises. I will make for you a great name like the great ones of the earth. Now I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to make a mental note of this. This use of the word great. He tells David in 2 Samuel 7, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. We will come back to this. Then God says I'm going to appoint A place, a land of peace and rest from all Israel's enemies. The covenant always culminates in Sabbath rest and victory, again, ultimately in God's own rest himself. So that's the prologue. The second point we've called dynasty and dwelling place. So again, we're unpacking the Davidic covenant. That's what we're doing. At the end of verse 11, the Lord says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So, it's important to see the play on the word house here. right? House can mean a residence, like a dwelling place, or it can mean a dynasty. right? So you can talk about the house across the street, or you can talk about the house of Windsor. 
It's a dwelling or it's a dynasty. So David wants to build God a house, a dwelling place. But here in verse 11, the Lord says, I'll build you a house, a dynasty. And beginning with David and continuing through Solomon and all the subsequent kings of Judah, God is going to establish a Davidic house, a Davidic dynasty. Notice that this dynasty is permanent. It's everlasting. Verse 13 says, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. Permanent, everlasting Davidic dynasty. It'll be sure forever. However, David's desire... To build God a house, that is a dwelling place, that shall also come to pass. So you can see this down in verse 13. David's son, that is Solomon, is immediately in view. He shall build a house that is a residence, the Jerusalem temple, for the Lord's name. So there's a couple things to notice here. First, there's an order of grace. God builds David a house, a dynasty first, right? And then David's dynastic successor builds a house or a temple for God. Right? God always builds the world in which we can build for him. Right? God's grace always goes before our labor. But more importantly for our, our purposes this morning, I want you to see this. There's two permanent perpetual things which are bound together here. The, the Davidic dynasty and the dwelling place. The dynasty and the dwelling place, the temple of God. There is, if you will, a lineage and a location. A dynasty and a dwelling place. And the two are inseparably bound together in the purpose of God from this point forward. David is bound to the divine king and the king is bound to the Davidic monarchy. God himself now rules as king in Israel through the Davidic line. Now, the critical importance of this, whole swaths of the Old Testament are unintelligible unless we grasp this. But the critical importance of it can be seen, like if you're reading, say, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you'll see these various judgments begin to unfold, right, as the, the kingdom begins to degenerate and leads off into exile in the 6th century B.C. And repeatedly you're told in that text that judgment either comes or is deferred Quote, for the sake of my servant David and for Jerusalem. So the the lineage and the location, the dynasty and the dwelling place, the promise made here drives the whole history of Israel. It's a key, actually, to unlocking reading the Old Testament well. So the third thing is David's son and God's son. David is told in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Right? Solomon then will build a house for Yahweh. And verse 14 is crucial. 2 Samuel 7, 14 is the Davidic covenant in a nutshell. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So David's son is God's son. And it's precisely this relationship, this joint sonship, being David's son and God's son, which constitutes one as an heir to the throne. And you'll see this later in the Psalms. Here's Psalm 89, which is a commentary on this text. So just as an aside, if someone says Davidic kingdom, here's what I want you to think. 2 Samuel 7, 
Psalm 89, Psalm 132. That's it. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Davidic kingdom. Here's Psalm 89. He shall cry to me, you are my father, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm with him. And I will establish his offspring forever as the, and his throne as the days of heaven. So there's a perpetual dynasty for the son of David, who is also the son of God. And that brings us to the fourth point. This may be the more, the more difficult point. I call, you'll notice I, I labeled this point the unconditional condition. And what I mean is this. This Davidic covenant has, clearly it has conditions. You can see it in verse 14. When he, the son of David, commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. So, any given son of David, who is also a son of God, who becomes king of Israel, king of Judah, can be disciplined. And of course, we see this right away. Right away. Solomon sins, the kingdom is torn from his son. But for the sake of David in Jerusalem, two tribes are left in the southern kingdom, and that drives, continues to drive the promise. But... Unfortunately, look, I know it's Christmas morning. Unfortunately, it gets a little more complicated. More startlingly, the dynasty itself comes to a complete end. After about 400 years, when Judah is judged and sent into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. No Davidic monarchy, no Davidic king, gone. When this occurs, it's a traumatic event in the history of Israel. And you can tell the prophets wrestled with it. This is 2 Kings 23. God there, God says this in 2 Kings 23, shockingly, I will remove Judah out of my sight, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So the dynasty, the Davidic line, the monarchy, and the dwelling place, the temple, are gone. Destroyed by the Babylonians. The Davidic line of kings ends. The temple is razed to the ground. It seems like the whole Davidic covenant experiment ends in a complete failure, a complete disaster. And yet it's clear from the text that the ultimate purpose of the covenant is unconditional and cannot be thwarted. How do we know that? Well, because after speaking of disciplining the Davidic son, if he commits iniquity, God says this. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And then he goes on to assure David that this dynasty will be sure and established forever. Right? You have all of this language. 2 Samuel 23 speaks of the Davidic covenant as everlasting, ordered in all things and secure. Isaiah says that... God's everlasting covenant consists of his sure mercies to David. So I know this is difficult, but it's very much like the new covenant. In the new covenant, as an order, if you think of the new covenant as a public order, it will not fail. God will bring his people to glory. The new covenant will end in in glory. However, any given person publicly in the new covenant could fail. It's the same thing with the Davidic situation. The Davidic Covenant will not fail, but a whole bunch of Davidic kings can fail. 
And that's what, in fact, happened. The order will succeed, but at any given time, it could be a disaster. And that brings me to the last point, the fulfillment. So we are in the exile in the 6th century BC at a point of acute crisis. The perpetual dynasty is shattered. The promises to David are, to all appearances, broken promises. Like, if we only had the conditional aspects of the covenant, this would be understandable. But the covenant is in itself unconditional. It must come to fruition. So what happens then? So we could simply say, well, Jesus comes and fulfills the covenant, which is, of course, true. But just saying that still leaves us with a problem. Right? The promise to David explicitly entails a perpetual, uninterrupted throne succession, which the, which the exile brings to an end. I think the best way to handle this, then, is to see that the Davidic kingdom is what we call a typological kingdom. It's not an end in itself, but it's a type, it's a shadow of a kingdom which terminates on the greater son of David, namely the son of God. Same way that Christ is the seed of Abraham to whom the promises ultimately belong, so Christ is the son of David to whom the promises in our text ultimately belong. It's crucial to see this. Now, the prophets then wrestling with this, particularly the Advent prophet Isaiah, he instinctively grasps this. And here, finally, we move into the glorious orbit of Christmas. In Isaiah 6, after speaking of the coming desolation of Israel and the land and sending the people away into exile, Isaiah says this, nonetheless, a stump will remain. So think of the Davidic monarchy as a tree. It's cut down to a stump. That's all that's left of it. All the kings and the whole, all the accoutrements of the monarchy are shattered. But there is a stump there, Isaiah says. And then in chapter 11, a great Advent prophecy, he says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. What is Isaiah saying? He's saying from the hewn down, decimated monarchy, from the stump of it, a tender shoot will spring forth. So the prophet believes that even in the face of the historical evidence that the Davidic monarchy is gone, he believes that God will revive the monarchy in the Messiah, who is the son of Jesse and thus the son of David. The monarchy is gone. But the line of David is preserved, and from that line, a Davidic king to whom the promises belong shall arise. I wish it were simpler than this. Now, Jesus fulfills in his own person both types of sonship we looked at earlier. He is God's son, and he is the son of David, both uniquely, both uniquely. And he's the fulfillment of our text, as he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament promises. He's the obedient son of David who does not commit iniquity and whose reign shall not be cut off. And it's of this coming messianic branch, all the branch shoot stem language 
is, is rooted in the Davidic covenant. Of this messianic branch, Isaiah says in chapter 9, which we looked at last night, he's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And now get this. Isaiah continues and says this. He is all of these things on the throne of David. On the throne of David. And over his kingdom. To establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. So all of the Christmas language about David and David's royal city and Davidic genealogies, and the birth of the king, and the incarnation of the son, all of that Christmas vocabulary finds its origin here in this text. This is the Davidic root of Christmas. And without it, you're just going to think, man, there's a lot of David stuff when, when the angels and the shepherds show up. David this, and David that, and David this, and David that. But behind it is this long series of tangled history. And now, finally, hear the words from the gospel lesson today with new ears. By the way, reading those early chapters in Luke's gospel without this Davidic background is difficult. So this text that we read from Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, this is the Annunciation to Mary, right? Here's what the angel says to her. And you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now, right there, you're thinking, that's got to be the Davidic son who's also the son of God. That's the first thing you should think. But notice what the angel says next. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. Remember I told you to make a mental note about the greatness promised to David? He will be great. And he will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High. This is the express fulfillment of the promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7, with their long, tangled history in between. And then notice, the angel continues to Mary and says this, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, there had been no king in Israel for 400 or 500 or 600 years at this time. No monarchy. The monarchy is revived from the stump from the hewn down line of David. Think of it this way. In Jesus Christ, the Davidic monarchy has moved from Jerusalem to the new Jerusalem. From earth to heaven. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Right? The announcement of this Son of God and Son of David, fulfilling the terms of this text, is the heart of the great joy of Christmas. Right? Otherwise, as I've said here before, Jesus could be Scandinavian. Right? If he's Scandinavian, he just drops down from heaven, dies on the cross, saves you from your sins, you go to heaven. And what, what does that do? Well, it just brackets out the whole history of Israel. It's unnecessary. But Jesus is not Scandinavian. He's the son of David and the son of God, and as such, fulfills the terms of this covenant. This is at the heart of Christmas joy. No covenant theology, no Christmas. Right? No covenant theology, no Christmas. No Davidic covenant theology, no Christmas. 
or some kind of weird personalized Christmas. Christmas gathers up all the promises made from the beginning of the world to Israel and to all the nations. So the Son of God, the obedient Son of David, the everlasting King, the root out of dry and parched ground, out of the hewn down stump of Israel, has appeared. The covenant with all of its richness and all of its complexity has been fulfilled. The kingdom, the reign of God has come. Joy to the world. Let earth receive her everlasting Davidic king. Amen.